Uh, I refer you to three passages in 1 Peter, just to help us uh, meditate on what Jesus has done for us uh, when he died for us on the cross. So 1 Peter in the New Testament, this is towards the, sort of towards the end of the New Testament. 1 Peter. And maybe you could be taking notes, maybe just write down the three passages we're going to look at in 1 Peter. I really don't have an outline. I think sometimes it's good just to dispense with an outline and just, just read Scripture and meditate upon it and, and let us uh, really be drawn to God with a spirit of gratitude on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I pray now as we meditate on your holy and inspired word, the word of the living God, um, I just pray would be drawn to you and would appreciate more than ever the salvation that we have in Jesus. That's our humble prayer we make this morning. We pray in Jesus' holy name and his powerful name. Amen. So the first passage, uh, if you want to write down the references, 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. And of course, Peter... Peter writes because uh, his readers are starting to suffer persecution, so he's trying to encourage them. Um, He's trying to motivate them to persevere, to keep believing in Jesus, so he's going to remind them of what they have in Christ. Peter's going to remind them of their inheritance. He's going to remind them that they serve a risen Savior. He's going to remind them that they're waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ, and even more grace, more grace is going to be shown to them, even at the second coming of Jesus. Uh, But in this letter, the Apostle Peter also reminds uh, these Christians how to live. How to live, especially in a pagan society. How to live even though you're being persecuted. How to live even though you're experiencing the hostility from those who don't believe. And how to live even though others around you aren't going to live the way you live. They have a different set of values and a different set of ethics and standards. Uh, So here, uh, notice chapter 1, verse 17. And if you, that's you Christians, if you call on the Father, and that's what Christians do, we call on God the Father. We address God as our Father who is in heaven, and that's a wonderful relationship that we have with God. So if you call on the Father, and we do, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, of course we Christians uh, will be judged for our works, but not in terms of whether we're saved or not. We may be judged in terms of our works uh, for rewards. Um, unbelievers may be judged for their works in terms of the severity of their punishment. Uh, nevertheless, God the Father is the supreme judge who judges all. So if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct See, now we're getting around to Christian conduct. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your sojourning here in fear. So Peter is telling his audience, look it, you're a special group of people. You call upon God the Father. You you call upon God as your heavenly Father. You have this special relationship with God that came about through faith in Christ. And remember who God is. We're all accountable to God. We're all answerable to God for our lives and for our works. So now he says, now you Christians, you conduct your life. You live your life. You behave in such a manner that throughout the time of your sojourning here on earth, you show the utmost respect and the utmost reverence for God. Because God is worthy of your reverence and respect. 
Um, we have that word he- fear here, uh, the, the time of uh, your sojourning here in fear. We could, I think, translate that in the sense of the fear of God, having the utmost respect uh, for God. And it's interesting how Peter views our life here on earth as a sojourning. It's like a pilgrimage. This is not our permanent home. We're just like strangers in a foreign land passing through. Now, why should we have this kind of conduct or behavior that shows the utmost respect for God, the utmost reverence for God? Verse 18, it's because we know something. We Christians know that something is true, and here's what we know. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct. Now, so we're getting back to conduct again. See, the conduct of these people before they became Christians was aimless. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. So these people were just going along, doing the same thing generation after generation, uh, just living the same kind of lifestyle that was passed down to them by their forefathers. And Peter calls that kind of life aimless, mindless, going nowhere, without purpose. It's just a futile, pointless life. It was a life in which people just serve themselves and serve their selfish desires. It was all about gratification, self-gratification. And they're all just worshipping these pantheon of gods. They were pagans. They worshipped all kinds of gods. Peter says, you were redeemed from that. You were saved from that. Knowing that you were not redeemed with, with things that perish. You weren't redeemed with silver gold. You couldn't buy your redemption. And you weren't saved from your aimless conduct with anything you did or that you could buy. Now we get down to verse 19. Well, then how were we redeemed? What was the price of our redemption? Verse 19. You were redeemed what with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So that word redeemed means to, to have been purchased God has purchased us with the payment of a price. So what was the payment price? It was the death of Jesus and his shed blood on the cross. So God has purchased us with the shed blood of Christ, and now God owns us. We're his. So that's what redemption means. It's it's buying something, buying something back, paying a price and buying something so that now we are owned by God. We're owned by Jesus. And there's another element to redemption. It means we've been set free. We've been liberated. So these readers are no longer in bondage to their old lives and their old passions and their aimless conduct that they received from tradition by their forefathers. No, they've been saved from all of that. They've been liberated from all of that. And now they serve God and they serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 19, Peter makes it a point to emphasize the sinlessness of Jesus. Jesus is as of a lamb without blemish. And without spot. Did you know in the Old Testament when a worshiper was going to take a lamb from the flock and offer it as a sacrifice, he had to choose a male lamb of about one year old. And the lamb could have no birth defects. The lamb could not be a lamb that was maimed or injured or had any kind of blemishes whatsoever. And I believe God was teaching his people that when you give something to God, you give your best. You don't say, well, boy, this lamb's going to be sacrificed anyway, so I'll just pick the runt of the litter. I'll pick a lamb that hasn't grown too good, or I'll pick a lamb that's sickly, or a lamb that has birth defects or is deformed. I'll just, I'll just get rid of that one anyway. 
no, no, no. God says, no way. You're not going to treat me with that kind of disrespect and contempt. And so Jesus is that perfect lamb. The lamb, as the text says, a lamb without blemish, without spot. A lamb that was perfect and sinless. Also in verse 19, you notice we have that phrase, with the precious blood. Now, throughout the New Testament, we have that word blood. The blood blood of Christ refers to the dying and the death of Jesus on our behalf. And it's sort of a word uh, that's used with a lot of meaning. And, of course, when we have that reference uh, to the blood of Christ, it, it means that, well, Jesus didn't just die a natural death. He didn't just die from old age. He didn't die from an illness at home. No, no, no. Jesus died a violent death. Blood was shed. Jesus was murdered. He was mistreated. He was executed. He was innocent. And he was slaughtered like a lamb is slaughtered. So that's why we have that reference frequently throughout the New Testament to the blood of Jesus. And that little term blood refers to his whole sacrificial death and the way he died for us and for us sinners. But I notice it says, with the precious blood of Christ, with the valuable blood of Christ, with the all-important sacrificial death of Jesus. So what makes the sacrificial death of Jesus so precious? Let's just think about that for a few moments before we move on to the next uh, chapter and a passage there. Well, I think the blood of Christ and his death on our behalf is precious because of who Jesus was. Think about who was on the cross. It wasn't just an ordinary man. It wasn't another sinner like you and me. It wasn't a person who had all these faults and failures like you and me. The person on the cross was the eternal Son of God. Or to put this in other words, it was God. Not God the Father, but it was God the Son. Deity was on the cross dying for you and me. God sent His Son, His only begotten Son, into this world in order that we might be saved, and in order that we might have life. Not that we love God, but God loved us, and he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we see here the the love, the profound love of God that let go of his Son. I think of Romans 8.32. He who spared not his only Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with Jesus give us all things? So on the cross was God's beloved Son, the Son whom He loved throughout all eternity. God was willing to send, He was willing to let go of His Son, so that Jesus, the Son of God, would be on the cross, God bearing our sins. I think the blood of Christ is also precious, as I've already mentioned, because Jesus is sinless. He was absolutely sinless. So Jesus can help me, He can help you. Jesus is not just another sinner like you and me being nailed to the cross. If Jesus was just another sinner, what help could he offer you and me? How could he save us from our sins if he needed to be saved from his own sins? But he was sinless, and Scripture makes a big point out of that. I think another reason why the blood of Christ is precious and valuable is because Jesus was there on the cross as my substitute and as your substitute. In other words, Jesus was there on the cross. Jesus was there enduring and suffering what I rightly deserved. Jesus was there suffering and enduring what you rightly deserved. But Jesus went there in my place. And Jesus went there in your place. As my substitute and as your substitute. And that's what makes the death of Jesus and his blood that was shed so precious. He was there as my substitute. And all the gain that I get from the cross of Christ, all the benefits that are derived to me from the cross of Christ as I believe in Jesus, didn't deserve a one of them. 
who were blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, didn't deserve any of it. What I did deserve, Christ took for me. Christ was there enduring the wrath of God on my sins in my place for me. Boy, you talk about love. You talk about compassion. And I think there's another thing that I think of that makes the blood of Christ so precious and so valuable and so meaningful to us who believe in Jesus. It's that what Jesus did for you and me is sufficient. It's sufficient. It's adequate. It's enough. In fact, it's so good, no other offering for sin ever needs to be made throughout all eternity. You see, we have this word in the New Testament. It's a big word. We don't use it every day. It's called propitiation. Jesus was there on the cross as an offering for my sin, and that offering God accepts. And through faith in Jesus, through faith in Jesus as the final offering for sin, I am able to avert and avoid God's wrath and God's judgment on my sin. God is fully satisfied that my sins have been judged and punished in full when Jesus died in my place. So that's why the Apostle Paul is able to say in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So I think these are some of the things that makes the blood of Christ so precious. And we are certainly a redeemed people. Keep that in mind. We are a redeemed people. Bought with the blood of Christ, owned by God, set free from sin and evil and all the consequences of sin and evil. All right, number two, let's go to our second passage. And if you're taking notes, you can just put down uh, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses uh, 18 through 25. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And again, notice in these words how, how Peter talks about conduct. But he gets around to linking and grounding our conduct in the death and the dying of Jesus for us. That's very important. All right, now if you're in chapter 2, chapter 2, yeah, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. So now Peter is uh, giving a special word to servants and how they should behave as they serve their masters. Because again, Christian conduct is important. And uh, Peter is trying to remind his audience uh, that the way you live your life can be a powerful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, even before you say anything. So verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, with all reverence, with all due respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. And that must be difficult to serve a harsh taskmaster. For it is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. See, you want to have a good conscience before God. You want to have a heart. Uh, that you can say, I've done what is right today, I've done what is good, I've treated other people well, even if other people are treating you wrong and not treating you very well. You want to keep a good conscience. You want to have a clean, good conscience in the presence of God. You want to have a good conscience in your relationship to God, because as a Christian, we know we're accountable to God. God sees everything we do, and He knows our heart. So verse 19 again, For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Uh, Verse 24, what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But if when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So, in other words, if you do wrong and you sin, and you're getting the punishment you deserve for your offenses, big deal if you take it patiently. 
But if you do what is right and good and proper and you suffer for it and you suffer wrongfully for it and you take it patiently, now this is commendable in the presence of God. And can you think of a great example of a person who suffered wrongfully, who suffered great injustice, but took it patiently? Jesus. Jesus in his death on the cross. And that's what Peter's going to mention now. He's going to cite Jesus as an example. Notice verse 21 now. For to this end you were called, for this purpose you were called, for this goal you were called. That is to say, to suffer for doing good if it's necessary. For this end, for this end or goal you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in the steps. So yes, Jesus suffered wrongfully, and he took it patiently, so we Christians may need to suffer in this world. We may need to suffer wrongfully and take it patiently just as Jesus did because that's part of living in a sinful world with people around us who don't believe in Jesus. So now notice Jesus' testimony. Notice his legacy from the cross, verse 22. How did Jesus handle his execution? How did he show his patience in being crucified? Verse 22. Who committed no sin. Even in his death and his dying, he committed no sin. No sin in his lips, no sin in his mind or his thoughts or his attitudes, no sin in his actions. Who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth. No no trickery, no deceit, no deception, no lying was found in his mouth. When he stood before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, and he had to answer to Caiaphas, there was no guile, no trickery, no deceit. When he had to stand before Pontius Pilate, He was honest. He didn't say a whole lot. He said very little, but what he did say was honest. No trickery, no deceit. Verse 23. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. So we have that word reviled. Remember we read from Matthew 27 earlier? And we think of all those bad, nasty things that people did to Jesus. How they criticized him. How they plated a crown of thorns on his head and put this scarlet robe on him and put a reed in his hand and, and, and tried to dress him up like a king, like a mock king, and then, and, then, and then scorn at him and scoff him. They were mocking him. And remember how they all uh, were walking by the cross there and, oh, if you be the son of God, now you come down and you show us who you are. Oh, you claim that you could uh, destroy the temple and build it in three days. If you have all this power that you claim, well, show it to us now and then we'll believe. You see, everybody was ganging up on Jesus. And everybody had nasty, bad things to say about Jesus. Nobody had a good word to say. They're all criticizing Jesus and mocking him. And you know, it's real easy when the whole crowd, when the whole crowd is rallied against someone and mocking someone, it's easy just to join in, isn't it? So when Jesus was reviled, criticized, mocked, scorned, made fun of, belittled, spit upon, and ultimately crucified with all the horrors of crucifixion, guess what? He didn't revile in return. People did bad things and evil things to Jesus, but didn't, Jesus didn't retaliate or get revenge. You see how Jesus took his suffering? And then the last thing mentioned in verse 23 is when Jesus suffered, when he suffered, and believe you me, he suffered all right. When he suffered, he did not make threats. He did not threaten. He didn't make threats from the cross. Say, oh boy, when I, when I, when I get down from this cross, when I come back from the dead, boy, I'm going to get you. And I'm gonna get... He didn't say that now, did he? Didn't make any kind of threats at all. No, no sense of revenge or retaliation. But what did Jesus do? The end of verse 23, he committed himself. He entrusted himself. He handed over his present suffering. He handed over his future. He handed himself over to him who judges righteously. In other words, he wasn't going to judge anybody. He was going to hand this, this, this whole scenario of being crucified over to God 
and let God do what he is pleased to do with respect to his enemies and to those who crucified him. Now notice verse 24. This is kind of what I've been working up to. Verse 24. Jesus himself, not a representative, not somebody he designates, but Jesus himself bore, he carried, he endured. Whose sins? Our sins, my sins, your sins. He bore, he endured, he suffered for our sins. In his own body, his own flesh and blood, human body, felt all the aches and the pains and the misery and the horrors of crucifixion on that tree. And they're mindful that the Peter says, on the tree. Why didn't he just say, on the cross? But he said, on the tree. Of course, the cross is made out of wood in some sense. Yes, the cross is a tree. But I'm mindful of the Old Testament passage that says, Cursed is everyone who hangs in a tree. And Jesus was there being crucified on a cross or on a tree because Jesus was enduring the curse of the law. And what's the curse of the law? The death sentence. The curse of the law is when the law says you're guilty and you're worthy of death. And Jesus was there enduring the curse of the law for you and me. So it's very clear here. Jesus is my substitute. He was there on the cross in my place, in my stead for me. He was there for you in his own body on the cross. Now notice the purpose statement in verse 24. So Jesus bore, he endured, he suffered for our sins in his own body on the tree. That, here's a purpose statement, in order that, for the purpose that, we, we Christians, we who believe, having died to sins, in other words, we're not pursuing a life of sin anymore. Uh, we're living our lives under the lordship of Jesus. We might what live for righteousness. We might live for God. You know who's righteous? God is righteous. So we, when we live for righteousness, we're living for God. And so the dying of Jesus is meant to change me. It's meant to transform me. It's meant to change my direction so that I'm now living for and serving the true and the living God rather than serving myself. And then Peter adds at the end of verse 24, by whose stripes you were healed. By Jesus' suffering and crucifixion, I am healed spiritually in my relationship to God. And then verse 25, for you, you who were pagans and are now Christians, you were, you, were, you were like sheep going astray. They were like wandering people. They had no sense of direction, no sense of meaning in life. They were just doing their own thing, going their own way. They were just lost. But now you have been returned or you have been turned back to what the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. In Christ Jesus, we have a shepherd. And we have someone who watches over our souls, who watches over our lives and gives us a profound sense of care and love and direction. And so I just want us to see from this passage what Jesus did for us. He was there on the cross bearing our sins in his own body, that we might be changed and that we might be different, and that we might now have a shepherd who cares for us and loves us. We might have someone who oversees our life and oversees our soul. No more wandering through life, no more aimlessness. We have a shepherd and we have one who oversees. Now, the last passage, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. And again, in this section, Peter is reminding his readers, you may need to suffer. Make sure you're not suffering for doing evil. Okay, Make sure you're not out there as an evildoer and you're suffering for it. But if you're going to have to suffer, make sure you're suffering for doing what is good and right in the eyes of God. So, verse 17 Uh, This is chapter 3 now, verse 17. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 
If you do evil and suffer for it, you're only getting what you deserve. But if you do good and suffer for it, well, you don't deserve to suffer for doing good. But sometimes as Christians, especially in the ancient world, Christians did end up suffering. And then again, Peter brings up an example of suffering. None other than Jesus Christ. Now notice verse 18. For Christ also suffered. If Christ suffered, and we're his followers, we can expect to suffer too. Not everyone is going to appreciate our faith and uh, the choices and the decisions we make. They may mock us and criticize us. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Now why did Christ suffer only once? Because his once for all offering on the cross was all that was necessary. God is fully satisfied with what Jesus did. And again, for emphasis, no more offering for sins need to be made. So that's good news. Christ also suffered once for sins. And of course, it's for our sins, not for his sins. And here we have that uh, idea of substitution again. The just, that's Jesus, suffering for what? The unjust. So that's the idea of Jesus being on the cross there in my place, in my stead, uh, suffering and enduring what I rightfully deserved. Powerful words. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. And now we have a purpose statement. In order that, what, what, what? That he might bring us to God. That Jesus might take us and bring us to God and have God now as our Heavenly Father. So who brings us to God? Jesus does, based on his suffering for us. In other words, I don't bring myself to God. I I don't have enough good works. I can't do it myself. I I can't earn my salvation. Jesus is the one, through his suffering on my behalf, brings me to God. So uh, the purpose here for Jesus' suffering is that he might bring us to God and become God's friend. Uh, to be reconciled to God, to have peace with God, to be uh, now uh, as an object of God's love, to be exposed to God's plans and purposes, and to have that ambition to, to love God back and to do His will. So I have been brought to God to have a proper and wholesome relationship with God. Then, of course, the verse ends with uh, Jesus being put to death in the flesh, but He was made alive by the Holy Spirit. Yes, He was put to death in the flesh, but He was made alive, He was raised from the dead, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we have reflected on these three passages of Scripture from 1 Peter, just remember, we have a great salvation. Remember what Jesus did for us, that we could never do for ourselves. And hence we do have a debt of gratitude to give to God, a debt of gratitude to give to Jesus. And so may we always be found as those who are eager to do God's will, eager to love and serve Jesus, eager to keep God's commandments, eager to sing his praises, uh, eager to showcase what a Christian looks like before unbelievers and to share the gospel, and eager to build up this church and to support it because it's the church of Jesus Christ. So let's go forth being encouraged. All the verses we've read this morning really bespeak of God's great love in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to speak to all of us this morning as uh, we may have need. I pray that we might be encouraged to keep believing, keep loving you, keep serving you. And I pray that we all might be impressed with how wonderful the salvation and the deliverance and the victory that you have given to us in Jesus. We thank you again for the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
And let's sing our final hymn I've chosen, uh, Ask Ye What Great Thing I Know. And I love this hymn. I love the words. Uh, 197. Hymn number 197. Hymn number 197. Let's stand as we sing.